Recently, I've come across three different serious vascular occlusions occurring after chin augmentation. This was an area I was initially trained on years ago and taught it was relatively safe. I've changed my mind on that, and that's what we're sharing today on the Aesthetics Mastery Show. Welcome, I'm Dr. Tim Pierce. Hi, I'm Miranda Pierce. And today we're going to cover some more detailed anatomy of the chin and jawline so that you can be a safer injector. So isn't this supposed to be quite a safe area? Well, this is certainly how it was presented years ago. And uh, I've certainly seen it said in many occasions, if you're in the midline, that you're relatively safe. And although I think that's probably broadly speaking true, I don't think most augmentations are just on the midline it's very hard to get the aesthetic result without going a little bit on the left, a little bit on the right. And if you're doing a man, you're going to be off the midline for sure. Um, so that immediately puts you in the territory of the submental artery. And that's what's causing these vascular occlusions I've now come across uh, in different places. Um, and there's a lot of learning there, which, which is worth covering. So which are these vessels that are vulnerable? So there are really only two vessels that you're likely to hit directly in the chin. So you've got the mental artery and the submental artery. Of course, you also have the inferior labial artery, which is very nearby. But with just t just thinking purely about the chin, it really should be one of those two vessels. And particularly for augmentation of the chin, it's more the submental artery. So this artery comes, as it suggests, underneath the mandible. So the submental artery will curve round and then supplies the anterior part of the chin. Uh, but as we'll see, it's a lot more complex than that simple diagram that you see in the textbooks. Just before we dive into the complication, tell us a bit about why we would even need to be doing putting any filler in the chin. So chin augmentation is actually a really rewarding procedure. It's one of my favorite treatments to do, both in terms of restoration, but also beautification. Um, as you get older, you tend to lose some of the, the definition. So in, um, in older people, it just takes on a slightly rounder shape. And so the jawline um, gets a little bit abrupted as the chin rotates forward and upwards. So the, from the front of the face, you no longer have what I call the cherry on the bottom. So uh, you should have a low point uh, on your face here uh, when you're younger. And as you get older, you sometimes get a bit rounder and it's because of the chin going up. So chin augmentation or chin restoration would restore the position of the chin. So it's a really good place to treat aesthetically. Um, other reasons would be if you just happen to have a small chin, you know, if you're trying to get the ratios, the proportions better, and you're trying to elongate a chin so that the mouth looks more on that golden ratio, uh, that's another reason why people treat chin. But also the facial plane, you can show some recess. If the chin is small and it's recessed backward, augmentation is often uh, something you can do relatively quickly and beautify a face. So we know which vessels we're trying to avoid. What structures are those vessels supplying? So the submental artery supplies some very important structures in the neck. Now, if you think about where that artery is passing from the anterior part of the chin towards the neck and just super, superior to it are the muscles that would stabilize the floor of the mouth while you swallow. So the digastric muscle, the geniohyoid muscle, the mylohyoid muscle and the stylohyoid muscle can all be affected. There's also, in theory, in some people, a connection, an anastomosis between the sublingual artery and the submental artery. And this is very, very important because if you're injecting with high volumes, as we do when injecting the chin, in theory, you could affect the tongue's blood supply. And this is probably one of the worst injuries because a necrotic tongue is, uh, is extremely debilitating. So it's worth thinking about the complex anatomy that is, a, that is possible around here and not just thinking about the simplified versions that you see in the textbooks. So what can we do to be safer? So 
as with all of these cases, whenever you come across a case, you can dissect it in multiple different ways and try and think about how you can reduce the frequency of that happening, but also the severity of that happening. So the case I was involved with over the weekend, the practitioner did an amazing job um, and was very aggressive with how they restore the blood flow. So lots of hyalase were used. I think we got to 24, 1500 unit vials of hyalase that were used over about 24 hours. Um, and this is partly why I think she's got a really good result. There are other cases where you can tell by the case report they've put far less in and actually got necrosis as part of one of the outcomes. So um, you've, you've got to look at that in this way. Now we, don't, we never know for sure because every vascular occlusion is so unique, but I always try and pull out a couple of things that potentially have done differently uh, may have averted the severity or the frequency of that type of injury. So from a frequency point of view, um, each time you inject, you're taking a risk with a vascular occlusion, but um, what can you do each time you inject that decreases that risk? So one of the simple things, which I've always been an advocate of, is aspirating. Now, aspiration is not 100% effective, and sometimes that's used by some practitioners to say there's no point doing it at all. Um, my argument would be even if it only works 25% of the time, you may reduce 25% of the chance of a vascular occlusion. It's actually around about 50% in some of the papers I've seen. I've certainly had many dozens, if not hundreds, of, of positive aspirations back. I suggest you do that before every injection, particularly when you're doing large injections, large volumes. Um, the next one would be thinking about the anatomy. Where is that blood, blood vessel least likely to be? Now, all three of these cases were reported by the clinicians to be at the periosteal level. So these are, injections are deep. In theory, the artery is meant to be more superficial. Um, but obviously, you do get little connections, and, and sometimes the anatomy is different. And we never know for sure in the, in the case reports exactly where the needle was at the point of injection or whether there was, for example, the towering technique. I, I still see people do that. Um, which is when you start at the periosteum, but you become more superficial to get more projection. So all of these things might affect the risk a little bit. Going back to aspirating for a second, it's really important to know your product. So um, I'm quite aware that not all products will aspirate, and sometimes that's used as a reason to never aspirate. But actually, why not just get to know the individual products that you inject and the combination with the instruments that you use? So if you're using a 27 gauge needle with juvenile voluma, I've tested that. I know that it aspirates, for example. Um, but you might use a 30 gauge needle with juvenile ultra 2, and I know that doesn't aspirate. Now, knowing that changes how I inject on different days. I may, for example, not prime the needle uh, if I'm injecting a big injection uh, onto the periosteum with a product that doesn't aspirate that well, because then I know I get one aspiration which should be sensitive. Um, other things you can add on is when you do aspirate, start with very low pressure. So I've seen it said that if you pull back quite a lot, I saw a paper that reported on this, that you may suck the vessel wall in. And that's certainly been my experience as a junior doctor, that if you suck hard when you're trying to take blood, you don't always get anything out. And you actually need a little bit of finesse at the beginning, a gentle first stage of your aspiration. And then you're likely to get a few flecks of blood, hopefully, in some of those cases. And that may prevent you getting a large vascular occlusion. Um, you can also just aspirate between boluses. So if you're if you're doing a large augmentation, you know, some of the bigger ones might take four or five mils. Why not separate it into stages? Now, you're not, gonna, you're not necessarily going to decrease the frequency of vascular occlusion, but you may decrease the severity of the vascular occlusion. And I'm increasingly thinking in certain parts of the face that severity is more important than frequency. I would rather have five superficial vascular occlusions on a nose, for example, than one big one that causes blindness, though, if that's the ratio. Now, obviously, I'm trying to decrease frequency too, but there's something to be said 
for being particularly cautious with large boluses because when it does go wrong, it's much worse than the smaller ones. So um, that's something to think about as well uh, with these larger volume injections in the lower face. How about cannula versus needle? Would you always use a cannula in the chin area? So I definitely think the cannulas reduce the frequency of vascular occlusion. So, um, and I also think the chin is relatively, that there's plenty of space to move a cannula around. So unlike a nose where I feel like it's quite constrained, I think you can tell if your, the tip of your cannula is free, uh, a bit of mobility moving, the, the tip around will give you some reassurance that you're not in a vessel. Um, cannulas also aspirate with certain products, but once again, you've got to know your product. So I suspect with a gentle injector being respectful of the anatomy and looking for that mobility, small amounts at a time, um, that you will be safer with a cannula. Unfortunately, it doesn't always give you the same aesthetic result because you tend to be more superficial. You tend to be in the fat rather than on the periosteum. And particularly when you're trying to emulate the shape of the bone, it's probably better aesthetically to use a needle. So it's really for maybe some of the finishing touches or for blending in uh, some of the structures, maybe improving the jawline a little bit here can be done with with cannula, but for the actual augmentation of the chin, aesthetically, that the argument is quite strong in my mind that you're better with a needle. Anything else that's going to help risk reduce this risk? Maybe using sharp needles. So obviously, all needles start out sharp, but anywhere where you're injecting on the periosteum, we tend to blunt in the needle with the first injection. So that will almost certainly happen on a chin augmentation. In fact, the well-documented cases it's probabilistically less likely the first injection would cause it, but there's usually a couple of injections that are fine and then the vascular occlusion. And there is this intriguing idea that if you have a blunt needle, um, that if you're, if you're trying to slide it through the tissue, that it may just compress an artery deeper. So you haven't actually hit the periosteum. You may have some of it on, but ma mainly you're compressing the structures in. And if that is compressing an artery, you may just find you've penetrated the first bit of the arterial wall you're not completely through it. And then when you're injecting, you cause a vascular occlusion. So uh, I saw Julie Bass-Kaplan discussing this idea. I think I've seen Subio uh, illustrate it as well. Um, I don't, I think it's possible. I, I, I don't know for sure, but it's an intriguing idea. And I certainly hate injecting with blunt needles. Uh, I, I'm very one of those people who can feel the first one. And I always buy extra needles so that I'm going through with a fresh needle each time. Uh, but maybe that could help. Yeah, which kind of leads me on to my final point, which is patience. It's really important with these large volume procedures that you use patience. So we're not doing a lot in one go that you take time to assess between injections, uh, check capillary refill a lot in between procedures, uh, watch for your patient's response, all that stuff that makes for a, a, a nice, calm, easygoing process with lots of little safety steps along the way. Um, I, I think we'll probably decrease the, the likelihood of these very large vascular occlusions. Um, now, having said that, even 0.1 of a mil is enough to cause a large vascular occlusion, but it's probably going to be a lot better than if you've put half a mil in, for example, into a blood vessel. So um, we're, we're always just trying to shrink that down as small as possible. So let's say we were injecting these high volume treatments. What do we do if we do get a VO in the area of the chin? What happened with these cases? So looking at these cases as an overall, there seemed to be a sense in all of them that it got worse over time, as in the scale of the problem was bigger than they initially thought. So if you do have a vascular occlusion, I've certainly observed in my own case that it, it materially looked worse half an hour after I first identified it. So I don't think it necessarily was, but I think the signs emerge. So it can be as simple as that. Don't think at the moment that you've injected and you can see that there's some pallor that that's it. It's likely to get bigger than that um, because that's just the nature of these things. So keep your keep your mind open to the other areas that could be affected. I think 
it's easy to get tunnel vision in the in the heat of the moment and just focus on where you injected. Um, always have a stage of your assessment where you go back and think about the anatomy. This is actually where these support groups can be very helpful because other people do that because it's much easier when it's not your case to think more broadly. You do get tunnel vision when you're when you've got the adrenaline pumping through your system. Uh, but make it one of the stages. Think about all the vascular supply. Think about the connections that might be there and look. So in, in between your warm compress, your massaging and your rounds of highlays, you've actually got quite a lot of time to reassess. So when it comes to the lower face, you want to be checking inside the mouth. You want to be checking the, the gums on the anterior side, but also the floor of the mouth uh, underneath the tongue to get them to actually have a look. So you might see something there that, that, that sways your opinion about where to inject the next round of highlays. Have a look in on the neck itself and underneath in the in the areas that we don't normally need to look at, um, where you wouldn't normally uh, be assessing aesthetically. Check capillary refill. Look for blood flow. Ask the patient also, do they have any discomfort? Because in two of these cases, it was swallowing pain that highlighted the clinicians that there was something deeper going on that was more important. So there was nothing to see uh, initially on the surface of the skin, but we were picking up symptoms. And pain isn't always part of a vascular occlusion, but I think it's a reasonably sensitive tool that, you know, something is going wrong that you haven't yet identified. So ask you, you could even ask your patient to swallow, um, but pay attention to what they report back to you. Uh, don't just go by the number of rounds of highlays you've injected and the fact that superficially the skin is normal. Think about the structures underneath and that may enable you to pick up uh, more of the detail and maybe have a more aggressive treatment to rescue those deeper tissues. And that's certainly been the two cases with the clinicians in the UK is both of them went after some of those deeper structures and I think got good results as a result of being more aggressive than the more superficial treatment in one of the case studies. How do we go deeper? Like where do we inject to get... Uh, well, that's a good question. So what we agreed on the support group was that it might be better to use a cannula where possible. So you're just trying to decrease the amount of trauma, but sliding a cannula underneath the, the jaw um, into those delicate structures gently. So you're getting the higher layers there with the least amount of trauma. Mm -hmm. Seemed like a, a sensible course of action. Um, but, you know, you need to know your neck anatomy to a degree as well. We obviously don't want to be sticking needles into the carotid, but you can normally feel that. So you can feel the, the bigger vessels um, and just do low, low, low intervention. Like don't inject a hundred times in one spot if you can help it. Cannula where possible. Uh, probably larger doses if you know there's a, there's a compromise there. Get it in and then massage rather than doing repeated small doses. Uh, these are just ideas in, in my mind about what might be better. Uh, but obviously it's a sensitive area, so uh, most clinicians intuitively know you're not just going to rush in and stab it 150 times. And that case ended really well, didn't it? Because the clinician just did very good, was very comprehensive. Yeah, so the, the clinician who was on our complications group um, got a fantastic result. There doesn't seem to be any tissue necrosis at all. And it was a very large and very obvious and significant vascular occlusion. So a lot, complete pallor around the, the end point of the submental artery. I, I just want to share actually that particular nurse who dealt with a vascular occlusion over the weekend, who I'm, I'm going to ask to be interviewed on my Instagram. I hope, I, have, I won't say who it is yet until she says yes. Um, but she did a fantastic job. She held her calm over nearly 48 hours of dealing with this. And her patient messaged her on Monday saying everything was fine and looking better and that she was particularly grateful that she'd had the procedure done with her because, um, you know, it's easy to have these procedures done anywhere. And hopefully people are looking for clinicians who are well-trained 
uh, and can deal with these emergencies, you know, have that ability to think through complex medical situations and know their anatomy, make decisions and have a good support network to actually get the patient back to a safe place. So she did incredibly well. Hopefully I'll share her story on my Instagram. Um, but it's important that you hear that the patient themselves herself was actually very grateful to her afterwards. You know, it's not always the case that people are cross because you have a, you have a complication. So long as you can really rise up to the challenge and look after them well, then usually it ends with a closer relationship. Don't forget to leave us a comment down below if you found that useful or if, or if you have anything to add. And also you can download a free guide to the most risky areas to inject uh, in the link of the description down below. And do subscribe. We are only 20, a few hundred away from 20,000 subscribers. Thanks for watching. Bye-bye. Take care.